welcome to a special episode of AU Manufacturing Conversations with Brent Belinsky, featuring one of the companies we're putting forward as part of our quest to identify and celebrate Australia's 50 most innovative manufacturers for 2024. This campaign has been made possible through the generous support of MYOB, the original business management software developers, nothing beats the OG, as well as the CSIRO, the New South Wales Government's Advanced Manufacturing Research Facility, and the Commonwealth Bank. Matt Hill, thanks for having me here at your offices. Good to meet you and welcome to AU Manufacturing Conversations. It's great to be here. So I'll ask you the standard opener and that is how did you get here and what do you make? I personally got here, I've had a career of about 20 years working in high growth businesses. Everything from furniture to live high definition music, recording equipment, being a founder, being a CFO, being a CEO, being an investor all different types of businesses, software as a service, everything you can imagine, creative businesses. This is the first aerospace or deep tech business I've been involved in, but my career brought me here as a CFO. A good friend of mine who's a large investor in this business referred me to the co-founders. I had a meeting and one thing led to another, and I commenced in 2022 as the CFO. And then following on from that, in around mid-2023, our co-founder and chair, David Waterhouse, decided that he wanted to focus on the chair role and we were going to be looking at a different structure internally to manage the business. And I was asked to come on board as the CEO and I put my hand up and said, yes, been a great role, got a great team. And in terms of the business itself, we've been around for four years. At the moment, we're building hypersonic drones using scramjet technology, which is based on the Spartan Scramjet. That's technology that was developed by Dr. Michael Smart, who's one of the co-founders of the business. And we've got an order from the Defense Innovation Unit in the US, or the DIU, and we'll be launching with Rocket Labs towards the end of this year. And that'll be our first launch with this iteration of the technology. And we're really excited about that. We've also recently got a partnership agreement with another company called Kratos in the US for similar technology, if not identical, but there might be slight changes. So we're on a path to really use our knowledge and our expertise as hypersonic propulsion experts across various platforms within the aerospace industry. And the first key part of that is obviously the DIU. Tell me a little bit, please, about the origins of hypersonics. You mentioned Michael Smart earlier, co-founder of the company. Tell me about some of what he developed, scramjets, the weird shock tunnel at UQ, some of the other things that led to the formation of this ambitious little company. Michael Smart, or Dr. Michael Smart, was a professor of hypersonic propulsion at Queensland University, right up until when this business was founded. Prior to that, he was involved with NASA in their scramjet program for over 10 years, and he's spent his entire career working on hypersonic propulsion, and in particular the scramjet technology. We're using the Spartan scramjet-based technology in this business, and we've tested that through, as you quite rightly point out, the UQ shock tunnels and We've garnered a lot of data from that. We've probably done more tests in that sort of environment than anyone else. And that's the basis upon which much of our confidence in our first launch is coming from because we've done so much testing in that environment. So what's the current size of the company? You're about 30-something as it stands? Just below 40. 
but we're anticipating by the end of financial year, so 30th of June will be over 40. And so you've got an office here where we're sitting in Sydney. I've also visited the Carroll Park facility that you opened recently, and you've got some people elsewhere. Tell me about how the team spread out, please. In Sydney, we have three or four staff members, probably actually four or five. Sydney is basically our admin and marketing team. And in Brisbane, we've got the full engineering programs, R&D team, as well as our commercial team and product team. And the facility that you've toured in Carroll Park is our integration facility, which we took the lease over in August last year. That's a great space. We're very excited about it. And that's where we'll be integrating all of our technology. So if anyone quickly visits the website, they'll see that you've got a number of different vehicles under development, though it looks like the focus has mostly been, from what you read in the media lately, has been on the Dart AE. Obviously, that's, as you said earlier, what the DIU is interested in and Kratos, and, but you're doing a range of stuff. Could you just give us a quick overview of some of the things you're making at Hypersonics or will make in the future? We're making at the moment... Even though there's quite a few different iterations that are in the pipeline in terms of product, our essential product at the moment is the Dart AE, which is an Inconel-based fuselage and it's scramjet-propelled drone, hypersonic drone, which we're planning on flying up to Mark 7.2. That's our core product at this stage, and whilst we are being quite singularly focused on that because we've obviously got to launch at the end of the year, the other iterations of that product, which include... Delta V loss and visor which are in the pipeline are larger versions of almost the same thing, albeit with different materiality. So the Dart is based on Inconel. It's an alloy-based construction, and that can only go up to about 7, 7.2 when it start to melt. Following that, we're looking at developing the visor and the Delta V loss, which will be in composites, which has a much greater resistance to heat. And those two products will also have landing gear and will be able to land and be reusable. And they also have uh, multiple scramjets on them instead of just one? Correct. So the, the larger vehicles will have anywhere up to four scramjets, yeah. I looked at a few articles before we spoke, as one does, and you, you read some old articles and it looks like you know the focus is all about being this sustainable company that gets to space with no emissions, which is a much better result than rocketry at the moment. But in the more recent era, it looks like the focus has moved to defence. Is it fair to view things that way or is that other stuff got put on pause or is it just a matter of you're a small team so you've got to pick your battles and you'll pick that other stuff up later? We're working with the Defence Innovation Unit because they were the first client that came yep. along. What we're working on is a test platform. So the data is a test platform. It's non-ballistic and it's to study the movement and how these little birds, if you like, travel at Mark 7 and above. So it's very much... Even though the client is defence-related, what we're doing here is very much scientific-based and testing-based. So we don't see it as much of a departure from being sustainable. It's still the same sustainable hydrogen-powered technology. Now, in terms of the future technology, we do see eventually there being various commercial paths for what we're doing, which will be no longer underpinned as much by defence. But as with you know, a lot of these technologies and a lot of what we do and a lot of what happens in aerospace, 
the testing ground for a lot of the technology does tend to be in the defence industry, but we don't necessarily see ourselves as a defence company. We see ourselves as a company that's building and testing hypersonic scramjet technology from various platforms, and the first iteration of that will be via the Defence Innovation Unit. Now, in terms of future aspirations, we still hold true to all of our future aspirations. We still have the same big, hairy, audacious goals of you know flying to space and doing all those sorts of things. But to your point, we are looking to focus on what we're doing at the moment because we're a startup or a scale-up now, really. We're past the startup stage. We've got limited funds. You know, we're trying to do a lot with a little. So we will focus quite inwardly on getting this project right, getting to this launch, getting the team into the US so we can do the launch, getting all the learnings from that, further developing our commercial relationships with the likes of Kratos, whilst internally working on those new product lines. And so the uh, first flight through that HiCat program you mentioned, I think it was uh, late 2024. What are some things that will be addressed during those test flights? I think you have to deliver three vehicles for, for testing purposes. Tell us about some of the challenges. There are all sorts of things to do with communications, to do with collecting data, to do with a vehicle that doesn't fall apart when it gets up to ridiculous speeds. Some of that. They're pretty much all of the challenges. The other one to add on top of that is one of the biggest challenges is keeping everything on the inside cool during the flight. We've got a great team of people in Brisbane. Our GNC team is absolutely, so that's guidance and navigation team, are absolutely ahead of the game on what they're doing at the moment. We are very confident in our systems. So in all of our systems areas, we're very confident with our team leaders and where we're at in terms of knowledge and application of knowledge in building the DART and preparing for launch. There's huge amounts of risks. There's so many things that can go wrong during these sorts of launches, but what we're doing right now is is basically going through a process of doing everything we can to ensure that there aren't any issues. One of the benefits we've got in this business is that we've had very, very little staff turnover. So a lot of the people that were working on this project two or three years ago are still in the business. In fact, we haven't lost many people at all. So we've got a lot of retained knowledge who have been through the tests, who have seen the tests, who have gotten to work with Dr. Michael Smart a lot. They know what Dr. Michael Smart's concerns are, and he's obviously one of the thought leaders on the planet regarding this technology. So his uh, communications team around what could go wrong based on his experience and how that's sort of been disseminated across the team is probably second to none. So we're very confident that we're in a good place for that personal. We'd like to take another moment now to acknowledge our sponsors, MYOB, as well as the CSIRO, New South Wales Government's Advanced Manufacturing Research Facility, and the Commonwealth Bank. There would be no 50 Most Innovative without these guys. Thanks again for making this campaign possible. You've got the the first launch with the DIU and subsequent launches, and I read that you also have a teaming partnership with Kratos after that to potentially deliver as many as 20 DART AEs. That's a pretty large amount of work going to the US. Would it be reasonable to assume that a lot of manufacturing and then perhaps a lot of everything else will go over to the US? Should people be concerned that this is an exciting Australian company that's not going to be an exciting Australian company for much longer? We're doing everything we can to remain Australian, and even if we do go to the US, 
We have a heavy presence of our R&D and engineering team here in Australia and in Brisbane and also in Victoria. And we don't see that changing. Will we eventually have manufacturing facilities in the US as well as in Australia? I would say that that's more likely than unlikely, but we do intend on becoming an Australian company. But when you're chasing investment and when you're you know, you're in business, things can change very quickly. But at the moment, we're an Australian company. We want to remain an Australian company. All of our teams in Australia, I think we've got one employee in the US, but all of our teams in Australia in terms of the R&D and the engineering team. So we want to keep it that way. We hope so, but, you know, time is the thing that will tell. <laughs> so we're talking because you're part of our Australia's 50 Most Innovative Manufacturers. And one thing we're doing through the series is asking everyone their personal definition of innovation. Could you give me yours, please? Innovation for me is creating new knowledge that continues to create efficiency or effectiveness in the area that you're applying it in. Yep. Yeah. So something that does more with less. Correct. And one of the things that we're doing with our program and one of the reasons we, we were successful with the DIU is that we're able to build a hypersonic testing platform at probably at a fraction of what some of the larger companies could build the technology for. And that's through innovation, that's through bootstrapping, that's through you know all of the being in the trenches as a scale-up or a startup. You do more of less. But also what we're doing here is we're trying to create something that is reusable eventually which in itself is an innovation because that's doing even more and less because you get to do it again. And because we're using hydrogen as our fuel, these vehicles will be very easily reusable. Once they're landable, they'll be very easy to reuse because they're going to be... The fuel source is going to be a fuel source that, that can light and relight. And Our technology lends itself to being very innovative in the fact that it is hydrogen-powered. Yeah. We right. see that as one of our key points of difference. I've listened to a few interviews with Dr. Michael Smart, and he has some thoughts about universities, IP transfer, and some of the hurdles in between those two things. Do you have any thoughts on the matter? What do you, you think about innovation in Australia to do with university spin-out technologies, what could be done better, etc.? It's very hard to be critical of that process because we've been so fortunate. Like, we've got the CRCP program, which we're working with the University of Southern Queensland on. That's been a great relationship. We've got a lot out of it. They've got a lot out of it. It's been a great marriage of entrepreneurism with academia. And it's a good model. It's also a model that's very, very important in deep tech because there is so much money required to do what you need to do. And because we've been a company that's been so successful in, in garnering government grants. So we've got the MMI grant, we've got the CRCP grant. Previously we got... Exhilarating commercialization. we got that. We've also got, obviously, doing R&D as well. We are a company that has benefited from that whole environment. So I find it very hard to be critical. Some people, some operators might come out and say that they've got concerns about IP transferring all of these sorts of things and it was difficult, but... I'm a bit of a realist. I just think that if you're building a business from scratch that requires the level of investment that our business does, with the level of expertise and the level of technical knowledge required, particularly, you know, with PhD graduates, 
the whole university ecosystem is what's enabling us to do this, if for no other reason that if you go to our Brisbane integration facility, a large percentage of our engineering team are PhD graduates. A large percentage of those people were supervised by Dr. Michael Smart. So even at that level alone, we've been great beneficiaries of the university system. So I actually feel like we've been blessed in the way we have benefited from the university system as a business. I'm not saying that's the universal experience, but in terms of our experience, it's been a great experience. I try and refrain just to editorialise for a moment, try to refrain from taking one position or the other because, I mean, I get that people are entrepreneurial and take risk and they say, well, a raw bit of IP is not worth anything unless you've massaged it into a business, which is very, very difficult indeed. Mm -hmm. But the universities have also got people that work bloody hard and spent a lot of time and to part with that IP for free seems kind of insulting, ridiculous, whatever. But hopefully if people are grown-ups, they can come to a point of understanding. That's nearly the end of the conversation. To close, I'd like to ask you the boilerplate question. What's one issue within manufacturing that isn't currently getting the attention it deserves? In Australia? Yep. I think one of the issues with manufacturing is getting staff. Getting staff are being incentivized to train staff. Look, I've been, I went to the Endeavour Awards last December in Melbourne and we won an award on that night, and we were there with our partners, Amiga Engineering from Victoria. Yep. They got two awards. And I spoke to a bunch of different people that night who were all from manufacturing, some of them from canneries, every type of business. I mean, just think about it, you had a CEO of a hypersonic company talking to the CEO of a cannery. And we were talking about what are the issues, and the issues are getting good staff and being able to afford to retain them. The second issue is we're probably a country that's going to be further up the value chain if we're going to be successful in manufacturing. We'll probably be a lot of additive manufacturing or a lot of manufacturing using high-tech manufacturing facilities. If that's the hypothesis, and that's just a hypothesis, but that seems to be anecdotally the consensus I feel is commonplace in the market. We need to have a government that's prepared to invest in companies being able to train and maintain those teams. And manufacturing as a career path needs to become something that's encouraged and something that's looked upon highly because it really is such an important bedrock of any country is being able to make their own things. Yep. So if we're going to encourage businesses to become manufacturers and we're going to encourage more manufacturers, let's also encourage the school system to encourage young people to see that as a real career path and to see that as something to aspire towards as well. I think that's a critical aspect of it because in talking to other businesses, a lot of people see manufacturing jobs as transient jobs, something that they do now until they do something else. It'd be great to be able to build a manufacturing industry where just working in that industry in itself was seen and was also, from a remuneration perspective, what it could be for the people working in it. That would be important. And if we are going to be further up the value chain and if we are going to be additive manufacturing experts, which is, 
I'm not saying it's the only assumption, but there is the hypothesis that we will be further up the value yep. chain. Then we are going to have to make sure that we look after the teams that are working in that environment. For sure. To respond to that and give a proper answer would take many, many minutes and would bore the audience to death. But I think basically manufacturing probably needs to do a better job winning the propaganda war and telling telling people in general that companies like yours and many others are doing stuff that's first to the world and that is very difficult to do and can be done here and that's pretty exciting and that's not said enough in my opinion anyway that rambling aside matt it's been delightful to have you on the program and i appreciate you giving your time fantastic thank you